Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Crime World with me, Nicola Talent, is coming to your town with live shows across the country. Following our flagship show, Omerta, almost sold out at the Olympia Theatre Dublin on April 27th, we're taking to the road with promoter MCD. We'll be in the INEC Killarney on April 30th, Dolans of Limerick on May 3rd, and in Belfast Limelight on May 17th. Then it's on to Cork at Cypress Avenue on May 18th, and finally Galway, where we will perform at Munro's on May 19th. For tickets, check venue websites. Omerta, the sacred secret code of the underworld. But what happens to those who break it? Silver says that Garda Horkin started to fall to the ground. He, Silver himself got control of the gun. He used the butt of it to strike Garda Horkin on the side of the head. He then was able to put distance between himself and the Garda and he unloaded every bullet that was in that gun. Because he murdered a member of Angarda Shikana acting in the course of his duty, the judge will set as the minimum tariff 40 years. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. Killer Stephen Silver will be sentenced to 40 years behind bars when he next appears before the Special Criminal Court, where victim impact statements from the family of Garda Colum Horkin are expected to be read. Silver, who is 46, will not even be eligible to apply for parole for 30 years after he was found guilty of the capital murder of the Garda, who he shot dead in cold blood in Roscommon in June 2020. Today, I'm talking with Court's reporter Owen Reynolds about the two trials that heard details of Silver's psychiatric history and of the medical evidence that convinced a jury that on the night he murdered innocent Garda Horkin, that he was bad and not mad. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Owen, were you surprised that the jury came back, given the amount of uh, options they had, with the most severe being this 
what is not known anymore as capital murder, but it's a new char- it's a new charge conviction involving Gardy working in the course of their duty. Yeah, well, I think it's always a bit of a shock when somebody, well, I mean, he is only the second person to be convicted under that legislation. But I, I think the reason that it's shocking is nothing to do really with the, the jury. It's to do with the fact that he now faces, as a result of that finding, a minimum 40 years uh, uh, prison sentence. That is, he will be sentenced to life in the ordinary way for committing murder. But because he murdered a Gardi, a member of Angarda Shikana acting in the course of his duty, the judge will set as the minimum tariff 40 years. Now, he will be able to apply for parole after 30 years if he (laughs) is on good behaviour. You know, he will get the ordinary remission that any prisoner would get, which would reduce that to 30 years, but that's still a very long time. What age is he? He's 46 now. He went in, I'm not sure exactly when he went into custody. We'll find that out at the sentencing hearing. But say even if he's done a year in custody so far, it still leaves at 29 years. He'll be in his 70s by the time he gets out. Mid-70s by the time he's even able to apply for parole. Exactly, by the time he can... And there's no guarantee that a person will be released just because they're entitled to apply for parole. It's then up to the parole board to decide what happens next. And the only other person serving a sentence like this on the same conviction is Aaron Brady. Um, I think he is intending on appealing that. Uh, he certainly is intending on appealing that. I think it's already been said in front of the court appeal that there will be n- numerous grounds of appeal, um, and it's uh, set aside for a couple of days to hear that. Um, that'll be probably later this year at some point. Yeah, and I think really, you know, if somebody is is convicted in relation to, I mean, look, they'll have a go at appeal, won't they? I mean, it would be hard, hard to imagine that somebody would just accept without trying an appeal. No doubt Silver will be the same. Yeah, I imagine his legal team is already drawing up the the grounds for that appeal. Um, But, you know, I I, I haven't heard any suggestion that there was anything particularly unfair in his trial, uh, during his trial. Now, the thing about this trial was, and of course, the previous trial went to hung jury, and this is the second time Stephen Silver was was tried in relation to... um, the death of Garda Colum Horkin, but he never uh, denied killing him. There was a, a, a grapple with a gun and it was with Garda Horkin's own gun that, that he was shot dead. But um, Silver, nonetheless, the, the focus of the trial really was on the mental health of Stephen Silver and what condition uh, he was that night, that day when he, when he killed him, how, he was men- how his mental health was. Yeah, so he has this long-running diagnosis of bipolar disorder um, going back to his uh, early adult years. Um, He's had numerous... uh, He's been in psychiatric hospitals something like 17 times, between 14 and 17 times he's been admitted to psychiatric hospitals. Um, Each time he's been treated, usually using drugs such as olanzapine, which is supposed to be an antipsychotic. But the evidence was that whenever he got released from uh, those psychiatric units, he would stop taking his medication. He he said himself in his testimony that he didn't actually think that he was unwell for most of his life. He just thought that he'd had a difficult upbringing. He mentioned that his father was an alcoholic and he blamed his behaviour on that and didn't feel like he actually had the mental condition with which he'd been diagnosed. So he'd stopped taking the medication also because he felt that it slowed him down. It made him, you know, he felt that he wasn't able to get things done when he was on the medication um, and it made him put on weight. So for those reasons, he also wouldn't take the medication. And had there been previous history of violence with him or certainly of antagonism towards the Garda Shikona? Yeah, there had been. In particular with, well, put it this way, 
There were numerous occasions on which members of his family felt the need to call Gardaí because his behaviour was so erratic. Um, and typically what would happen is the Gardaí would come along. There was one occasion where guards said that they arrived. He was, um, he said that he was going to come with them, went into a bedroom, emerged in a kind of a, he was wearing a helmet and leathers and he had a sword. And, uh, you know, the Gardaí felt quite threatened by that. But in the end, he did go along with them. And there was talk of like later on, you know, within short time of that, he was sitting with the same Gardaí drinking a cup of tea. So he had this history of, you know, kind of, playing up, very dramatic playing up, either with his family, with members of the Gardaí, then going along with them and ending up in a psychiatric unit. And, and all of that stuff did play into the trial and it played into the psychiatric evidence that was given. There was conflicting psychiatric evidence given one uh, psychiatrist who was called by the defence and another by the prosecution who had different interpretations, let's say, of his behaviour, particularly on the day itself and how his behaviour over the years had you know, fed into that moment uh, when he actually killed Gerda Horkin. So what were those differing um, observations by the, the medics that were called? So Dr. Brenda Rice was called by the defence. Um, she is an eminent psychiatrist, consultant psychiatrist, and she is now the, I think, the interim director of the Central Mental Hospital. And she said that, uh, in her opinion, his behaviour showed that he was suffering a re relapse of bipolar disorder. Now, she based that on his previous um, admissions to psychiatric hospital, which she said were, you know, many of those, uh, the symptoms that he showed at this time were mirrored in those. She talked about, you know, his in his own interviews, he talked about this woman that he'd been seeing at the time, an Australian woman who he was seeing off uh, back to Australia in the days leading up to this. They stayed a night in a hotel and he said that he started to think that she was a member of MI6 or MI5, that she was a spy, uh, that she might be trying to kill him, that, you know, some English builders who were in the same hotel, he thought that they might be members of the SAS. He said that, you know, before he left Dublin to go back towards home on the day that Garda Hor he ended up killing Garda Horkin, he said that he checked under his van to see if there were explosive places placed under there by the SAS men and there was you know CCTV footage showing him getting down on his hunkers and kind of looking underneath the van now the prosecution said that that was just evidence of a mechanic checking his vehicle before a long journey he said that that was evidence of his you know growing derangement because he honestly believed that there was a bomb placed under his van by these people who were presumably just builders in a hotel. And was this woman, uh, this Australian woman that he had sort of obviously a romantic liaison with, now his life had sort of, you know, it had certainly gone off the rails. He had left his his marital home and he was living in a shed at this time. Um, clearly, you know, things weren't totally normal. But he'd, this romantic relationship with this Australian woman, was she called or was she identified at all during the trial? Um, she, I think her. I actually can't remember what it was, but I think her first name was used on a few occasions. I don't. I just don't remember off the top of my head what that was. But she wasn't called as a witness. She wasn't. She didn't have any bearing on the trial at all. I don't even know if she ever gave a statement to Gertie. Right. Okay. So um, basically, in in that case, um, Doctor Doctor Brenda Wright was saying that he was in the throes of this bipolar disorder. And she also said, I think, that he was on the far end of the scale of it because lots of people do suffer from this mental illness, bipolar, and it's manageable. Certainly, I know people myself who have it and they take medication and they, they are absolutely fine and able to function. But she was saying two things, I think. Firstly, that he was in this episode. Um, and secondly, that his particular 
bipolar was particularly severe. Yeah, so there were a couple of aspects to it. First of all, that um, he would suffer delusions. Um, and she said that that can be, that, that's quite an extreme example of it, including, you know, on one occasion, occasion believing that he was Jesus Christ, things like that, you know, really very severe delusions. That was very early in his, in his diagnosis, yeah, was wasn't it? Back in his 20s, I think, yeah. yeah. Um, but that, you know, those kind of delusions were a feature of his illness. Um, now, you said it's manageable with medication and his his illness was manageable with medication. That was the evidence given in the trial, but he refused to take it. So when he was in hospital and he was put on olanzapine or whatever drug was prescribed for him, uh, his symptoms would reduce and he would be considered, you know, fit to be released into the community. And that's what would happen. But then he'd stop taking the medication and he wasn't taking medication when he met Gerda Horpen and hadn't been for at least several months at that stage. And Owen, was that considered part of you know, his responsibility that that when he was on the medication, clearly he knew that he was well with it. So the not taking of the medication and knowing kind of how his life spiralled in the past, was that seen as, was did it come in at all into the, into the, the, well, the criminal thought process in the trial? Well, it did in terms of that, you know, the defence had to point out uh, certainly at the end of the first trial to the jury that that is, should not come into their thinking because you know, the legislation doesn't say, and you know, this is the Criminal just uh, criminal Law Insanity Act. Mm. It doesn't say anything about a person being on medication or off their medication and how that might affect them. It just talks about how their mental disorder affects them. So the defence did have to point that out to the jury that, put to, to, to say to them, put that out of your minds, whether he was on medication or off the medication is, is an irrelevance. But how that might have played with the jury is hard to know because mm. it is something where he does... He does bear some, even if it's not legal culpability, he does bear, bear some personal culpability because he should have had the insight and the awareness to know that his behaviour had become erratic so many times over the years to the point where he was a danger to other people, possibly to himself, and he had to be hospitalised because of that. And yet he still continued over and over again to reject the medical advice that he'd mm-hmm. been given. Now, Professor Harry Kennedy, who gave evidence for the prosecution, he didn't believe that he was in this in this bipolar sort of whatever you'd call it psychosis almost when he he actually killed Garda Horkin. Yeah so just with Brenda Wright she she actually said that the best indication of Silver's uh, mental condition was his Garda interviews immediately after the shooting mm. or certainly on you know later on the day of the shooting and, and in the co- coming days um and his behaviour over that time, which was very, it does seem very erratic. You know, he did things like in his cell, he stripped off completely. He was seen banging his head against the wall. Uh, and, and he had a cut on his forehead, which can actually be seen in photographs that were taken after he had been, when he was being charged. He um, he, he took off his clothes. He waved his genitals at Gardy. Mm. He waved his, his buttocks at Gardy. You know, uh, he, he urinated on the floor. So didn't we see some videos when he was actually being questioned in the station and the last time and we weren't allowed to discuss it because um, obviously the trial was ongoing. I think our our references and particularly mine to it were were edited out of the last podcast, but Mm -hmm. he was being questioned and he was behaving very erratically in front of police, wasn't he? Taking off his shoes and his socks and he was smelling his feet and he was sort of blowing his nose and getting up and walking around and yeah he was even at times kind of sucking his toes i think yeah um, he took some tissue paper stuffed it up his nose then put it in his mouth and spat it out um the way that he spoke about garda horkin was actually 
kind of shocking to hear. Mm-hmm. You know, the, he used a lot of denigrating language towards Gerda Horkin, um, questioning him, his abilities as a detective, questioning him as a person. Um, he uh, was very insulting towards the Gardaí who were interviewing him. And the Gardaí were notable by how calm uh, they remained during yeah. that when they were really being subjected to severe abuse. And also just the fact that he really wasn't taking this process seriously. Like you say, he was standing up, walking around the back of the interview room, looking at the window, whistling, singing to mm. himself. He was singing We Have All the Time in the World at one point, which I think was a reference to the fact that he wasn't going to cooperate and he'd sit there as long as he had to and he'd just, you know, while away the time doing what he wanted to do when he's been asked about things that are obviously incredibly serious. But like I said, you, you asked about Professor Kennedy's yeah. interpretation of this. So, so uh, Dr. Wright's interpretation of this was that this was all examples of bizarre behaviour that were suggestive of um, the fact that he was suffering a relapse. Professor Kennedy said that this was actually just his personality and a manifestation of his personality. That um, what had happened to him over the years when he had behaved badly like this in the past, he found he, what would happen is Gardy would come uh, the situation would be diffused by whatever way. There might be a confrontation, but it would be diffused. He'd find himself in a psychiatric hospital. He'd be treated, and that'd be it. There'd be no criminal charges. There'd be no sort of um, backlash for his poor behaviour. And he thought that at this time, that in the guard station, that's exactly what would happen. The guards would come along. They'd have a word with him. He'd be sent to a psychiatric hospital, and that'd be the end of it. Mm. And he he did say that on a number of occasions to different people that he'd be out. I'll be out of here this evening. You know, I just had. You know, I'm heading home later on. I'm going for a pint this evening. Things like that. Um, so he he didn't seem to be taking it seriously, and he did become more aggressive and agitated as the interviews went on and as this continued on into you know a second day and so on. And that was apparent. And so Professor Kennedy said that it was this learned impunity over the years that had that had given him this attitude, first of all, but that then fed into that kind of aggression that he showed later on with the Gurdy when he realized he wasn't getting out of there and he, things weren't going the way he expected them to go. So they're very two, two very different interpretations by Dr. Wright and Professor Kennedy. And it's really up to the jury then to resolve. And really, correct. they were the two kind of, were, were they in the trial that they were the two main pieces of evidence? Because as we spoke about and on the on the, the day in question, he had, maybe you want to bring us through that and, and we'll discuss exactly what he did on the day in question. Yeah, so he gave a description of what happened between himself and Gerda Horgan. And now I, I have to add in that we only really have his description of what happened. Um, there was another person present, James Coyne, but his recollection, recollection of events wasn't very good. So the only person who's giving a recollection of what happened is Stephen Silver. And I don't think we can trust that entirely. In fact, I know we can't. Mm. Uh, I think there are things he said that probably can be easily contradicted and so on. And he did lie in the first instance saying that Garda Horkin had shot himself. It was silly things like yeah. that, you know, that were clearly weren't true. Um, but according to himself... Uh, he was walking, heading down to get a pizza with his friend James Coyne. It was late at night. It's the middle of COVID. The streets are pretty empty. Um, there was an Apache pizza open. That's where they were headed towards. So they're on the junction of the Main Street and Patrick Street in Castlereagh. Um, and just moments earlier, minutes before this, himself and James Coyne had created a massive ruckus in a nearby estate called Knock Row, where James Coyne lives. Uh, they had gone in there with a motorbike doing 
donuts on the motorbike, you know, um, creating massive plumes of smoke, zooming around the estate with no helmet on, no lights, making a huge amount of noise. So the, the neighbours had called the Gardaí, and that's why Garda Horkin was in the area at that time. He had actually driven into Knock Row in his Hyundai car, but he got there just a few minutes after Silver and Coin had already left and they put the bike away. So he was seen driving this unmarked Hyundai around the estate, uh, that is Garda Horkin, and then leaving the estate. So he's obviously leaving as um, Silver and James Coyne are, are walking towards Castlereagh Town Centre and they come together at this junction on Main, of Main Street and Patrick Street. And uh, Garda Horkin, it would appear, went down the passenger side window and called out to Stephen Silver. And according to Silver, he said to him, what's your name? Who are you? What's your name? And Silver told him who he was <clears throat> and asked, who are you? And he said that uh, Garda Horkin told him that he was a Garda, um, although he did give different accounts of that he maybe he didn't hear that properly, but I think it's fairly apparent he did say that he was a Garda. And Garda Horkin got out of the car, <clears throat> and for whatever reason, Garda Horkin at this stage decided he was going to arrest Stephen Silver. Now, Silver's account was that he didn't do anything wrong. Um, uh, the prosecution suggested that maybe he spat through the window of the car or did something like that. Maybe he insulted him or maybe Garda Horkin was aware that this was the person who had driven the bike erratically. We don't know. But anyway, he decided that he was going to arrest him. Now, Silver again would say that he didn't think this person was a Garda. He didn't believe him. He said he was wearing a Tommy Hilfiger jacket. And he was wearing a Tommy Hilfiger jacket. He was unmarked. He was in an unmarked car and not in uniform because he was a detective. So... They started to grapple when Garda Horkin tried to grab Stephen Silver. Again, this is on Silver's account. Um, during that commotion, Silver said that he fell to the ground and he tried to pick himself back up by grabbing Garda Horkin's waist. And he said that that was the moment when he put his hand on the gun and he realized that this person had a gun. And he said that that made him very afraid. He didn't believe this was a Garda. He was wondering why was this person carrying a gun. They ended up grappling and fighting over the gun, each one trying to get their hand on it. Um, and as that happened, the gun went off, right? This is, again, I have to stress, it's on Silver's account. The gun went off. And it would appear that that gunshot caused an injury to uh, Gerda Horkin, which probably would have resulted in his death anyway. The pathology evidence was that there was one in, one gunshot which left soot marks on him and burn marks. Mm. That was that must have happened within 30 centimetres, close, a distance of 30 centimetres or less. So very, very close. And that gunshot did massive in, internal damage um, and probably would have resulted in his death. So anyway... At that point, Silver says that Garda Horkin started to fall to the ground. He, Silver himself got control of the gun. He used the butt of it to strike Garda Horkin on the side of the head. He then was able to put distance between himself and the Garda. Uh, at least one metre, I think, was the evidence of the pathologist. Um, and he unloaded every bullet that was in that gun. So 11 discharges in total. And from numerous of those, again, this is pathology evidence, and even on Silver's own account, uh, Garda Horkin was on the ground when those shots were discharged. There was an, another piece of evidence which showed that he was on the ground, which was that Garda Gillen, Garda Helen Gillen, was the passenger in a marked Garda patrol car, which was also in the in the area, having responded to these calls about a, a bike being driven dangerously in Knock Row. And they were just passing as this grappling began. And they heard the gunshots, they turned the car and Garda Gillett was able to see from the passenger seat a person lying on the ground and another person shooting um, repeatedly into the person lying on the ground, which they then discovered was Garda Horkin. I mean, that must have been so traumatic for that Garda. Yeah, well, she... Watching that and terrifying. Yeah, well, she 
cried quite a lot during her testimony. You could see that it was extremely difficult for her. The person driving that car was Garda Aidan Fallon, and he also became quite emotional during his um, his testimony. Uh, you also have to remember that there was there was a moment of pure shock for them when they approached and Stephen Silver got on the ground. Helen Gillen told him to get on his knees to get down. She wanted to handcuff him and Gerda Fallon went to see this who the stricken person was, turned him over and that was when he realised, when he saw the face, who he was who, who was the victim. Who he was, yeah. and obviously their colleague. Um, you know, when you think of that and the horror of that scene that you've just described for us and the video then that we saw of how he was behaving in the police station... Yeah, it was... Like there was no sense of, certainly, any sense of remorse or horror. I mean... I don't think it would be overstating to say that his behaviour in the guard station was entirely obnoxious. It it really was. It Um, was. And I mean, he was was goading, trying to at least the guards as well, and it was showing a complete disrespect, really, for the guards. Because, of course, earlier in that day he had taken it into his head that this friend of his had been very badly treated by the guards and he'd gone up to the station and had a bit of a rant. Um, you know, he clearly showed certainly some sort of a an attitude towards Gardaí earlier in that very day. Yeah, so this was another part of the prosecution case was that because he had seen this video of his old friend James Coyne, his house being raided by armed Gardaí some weeks earlier. And according to the prosecution, it was as a result of that that he developed this seething resentment, as they put it, towards the Gardaí that um, he was, in a way, in a sense, out to get them. There was evidence that earlier on that day, as he went with James Coyne from Knock Row to Stephen Silver's place out in Foxford, he stopped along the way, went into the Garda station and had a rant at the Garda who was standing at the desk telling him about, you know, he had a video proving that the Garda who had been, you know, uh, harassing this elderly man, as he put it. James mm. Coyne's not an elderly man, mm. but that's what he said. And uh, he shouted at them and then stormed off after about 30 seconds, refusing to answer any questions. There was also evidence from James Coyne that when they were walking down towards Apache Pizza, just, you know, in the minutes before this all happened, James Coyne had to persuade Stephen Silver not to go back by the Garda station, that he wanted to walk by the Garda station. For what reason, we don't know. But that was James Coyne's evidence that he wanted to do that. And James Coyne didn't want him going by the Garda station, presumably because of what had happened earlier, maybe some of the things he had been saying. So he persuaded him to just go down a more direct route, uh, avoiding the Garda station. And had there been evidence of whether or not there was toxicology examinations? Was was Stephen Silver, uh, did he have anything in his system or did that come up into the trial? No, I don't think that that arose. Um, mm. The He said himself that he, he had smoked cannabis years earlier, um, but that was something that he gave up because he found that it affected his mental health. He said that he didn't drink very much because it affected his sleep, which would lead to problems with his psychiatric help or with his sorry with his mental health. Yeah, that seemed to be constantly brought up that if he if he was going into one of these sort of spirals, that his sleep would be first affected or it was yeah. a sign of it. Yeah, and he said that that was happening it happening to him in the days leading up to this. Now, I, I do I think I want to put something else in here as well, just mm. because just to be fair to to both sides in it, Marion Bruin, who is is Stephen Silver's sister. She spoke to him a day before this all happened, the day before the killing. And she said that she spotted several red flags. She spoke to him over the phone while he was in Dublin. And she spotted several red flags, which she said were indicators that he needed psychiatric help, that he was having a relapse. And um, she was 
so sure of that that she actually spoke to her mother, their mother, about it. And they decided that when he got home, they were going to have him admitted to a hospital, a psychiatric hospital. Um, and, you know, uh, obviously the jury didn't accept that he was suffering a relapse of his bipolar disorder. But I think that's important to throw into the mix there, that his yeah. sister did spot the, the, the signs that something wasn't quite right with him at that stage. And there's been an interview over the weekend in the Sunday Independent with his wife, uh, Ali Bracken conducted the interview and she said that, you know, the, the person that was seen in court was not her husband, that she loved him very much and he was a, a gentle soul. Now, what I wanted to ask you was, he gave evidence certainly during the first trial, he took the stand himself, which is an unusual thing to do usually uh, and sometimes ill-advised of um, people in the dock to, to open their mouths at all. But um, he... Uh, you were saying to me the last time that when he got into the witness box, he was a different person than what we saw on video. He was quite articulate, quite gentle and mild-mannered, he came across. Yeah, definitely. And, and I do think it was one of the instances where putting the accused person into the witness box was actually an important thing to do to show that there was another side to him. I think that's what was attempted um, because obviously we said he was incredibly obnoxious in those guard interviews. When he got into the witness box, he apologized for his behavior there. He recognized that what he had said and what the way that he acted was inappropriate and was almost unforgivable. Um, he uh, apologised to the family of Garda Horkin and to the Gardaí. And he came across as fairly mild-mannered, well-spoken, um, fairly articulate, all of those things. And, you know, also remorseful for what had happened and for what he had done, yeah. Mm. And, you know, it's a kind of, it's it's a, a difficult case. It was a difficult case to be a jury member on, I would think, because, you know, who are we really to know what's going on inside anybody's mind, I suppose, but somebody with that long history and, you know, that both medics, both sides sort of admitted that he had this very long history of mental illness, which had resulted in episodes which landed him in hospital. Mm. Um, that's that's serious mental health condition, really. And to judge what was going on at that particular moment in time. But I suppose all the other things were there going on, what had happened earlier in the day, his hatred of the Gardaí. I mean, the murder itself is horrific, that description. It's it's so tragic, such a waste of a life, no yeah. matter what was going on. But It was a complete waste of a life. And it is, look, the jury obviously didn't accept <clears throat> um, this claim of diminished responsibility due to mental health condition. And they, they met their... We obviously don't know what discussions the jury had. The <clears throat> there would have been it would have been clear to them though that at times maybe Silver was not telling the truth. He certainly wasn't telling the truth throughout his entire testimony, and that can certainly go against the person you mentioned earlier on. But it was his choice not to take his medication. We don't know how that might have affected the mm -hmm. jury's thinking about these things. Even though legally they, it's not something that should be considered, it may have played in somewhat into their thinking. Um, so yeah, I suppose we don't we don't know. But there was evidence that he had a history of bipolar disorder. But Professor Kennedy was is a you know an eminent psychiatrist, and in his opinion, that didn't play into his behaviour under or at least it didn't significantly diminish his um, his his culpability for In a way, did. ultimately, he was sort of saying he knew how to act as if he was having an episode. 
But it was it, yeah. There were there were elements and it was of his that personality were, that was the problem rather than yeah. There was there were elements of feigning too. You know, at one point in the Garda interview, he's been asked questions and he just closed his eyes. <clears throat> he sat there and he didn't move for minutes and minutes. it must have gone on for seven eight seven or eight minutes. And he clearly wasn't asleep. He hadn't just dozed off. And then he kind of acted as though he was waking up. He said something about oh, I just had forty winks there and asked for a cup of tea. It was very staged, very mm, stage mm. managed, and it did come across as manipulative and like he was trying to manipulate the guardian interview and there were several instances of things like that which professor kennedy pointed to where he was able to act in his own interests as he saw it um and where he was able to um he several times he rejected attempts by the guardi to build rapport with him you know um he he did try to conduct the interview on his terms and he showed you know a lot of an ability to do that and to manipulate the situation which perhaps isn't indicative of a mental disorder but is more indicative of a personality I suppose at the centre of this case, we spent most time talking about uh, the accused in this, but uh, is uh, the gentleman that was Garda Colum Horkin. And I'm sure you, like I, spoke to members of his family that were around the courts, felt so sorry for them when the first trial collapsed or ended the way it did and they had to come back. Um, he was, seemed to be a very, very nice, gentle guy, lived at home with his father, went to work, enjoyed his job, was loved by everybody who knew him and, you know, had the most horrendous and, um, you know, as I said, a waste of a life. So his brother, after the verdict, his brother Brendan spoke briefly outside the courts and did describe him as a gentleman. And it was just striking because a number of people, a number of Gardaí who I spoke to, even who had nothing to do with the case, but just who knew Gerda Horkin either through training or they'd met him along the way, along through their careers. And a number of them did say to me, you know, that he was truly just a nice guy, a really good guy, mm. a gentleman. Uh, that was the way he was described by, I think, anyone that I spoke to about him. And it is really a tragedy that he has died. Now, we'll hear a bit more about him, I expect, at the sentencing hearing, which I think is on April 19th. And possibly a victim impact statement. So there'll be a victim impact stage, statement. Yeah. Brendan and his father, Marty, are likely to have either written something or they'll get up and say something at that. So we'll hear a bit more about him and the person that he was at that stage. He was a bit of a background figure in the trial and that unfortunately is the way it is because um, trials are not about the deceased really they're about the accused unfortunately but uh, we will hear more about him at that stage Okay Owen Reynolds thank you very much Thank you You've been listening to Crime World a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini If you like this show and love true crime Leave us a review, or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.